Thank you so much, Alex and team. Appreciate the way you lead us before the throne room of God. Well, good morning, Life Point. We'll try that again. I got about half of you that time. Good morning, Life Point. My name is Derek. My wife, Melissa, and I have been members here for about a year, and I also happen to lead a global missions organization. If, uh, if you're new with us this morning, welcome. We're so glad that you uh, took a leap of faith and decided to be here, and you probably drove here thinking to yourselves, if this goes really bad, what's our escape plan? And we're just grateful that you're here. We're grateful that you're participating, and hopefully you'll find that the person to the left and to the right of you are on the same uh, pathway of just trying to seek out and follow God as you perhaps are. Hey, listen, if you are a guest, let me encourage you to take out your phone. There's a QR code on the seat in front of you, and just point it, point your camera at that QR code. That'll get you to lpguest.com, and from there, you can get message notes. You can uh, see what's happening this morning, and there's some stuff that you can fill out as well, but we just want you to engage and be a part of this time. And we know that sometimes when you come into a new space, it's a little hard to figure out how in the world to engage. Uh, Life Pointers, uh, if you have the app, then you know to take that out and click on there to see what's happening around Life Point. If you don't have the app in your Life Pointer, get the app. It's worth it. It's helpful for you. In fact, tonight at our Lewis Center campus at 6 p.m., we're going to have a night of worship together. I love gathering together with God's people in worship and praise to God. Someone once said that worship is really about expressing the inexpressible. And it's interesting that before time began, Scripture describes heaven as being full of worship, being full of praise, and there's choirs. And so it's a great opportunity for us to get together and begin practicing, even as we practice this morning, but practicing for an eternity of lifting up the name of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to be there tonight, Lewis Center Campus, 6 p.m. Speaking of music, this last week, I was uh, listening to the new Ben Folds album when the first couple of lines of the very first song uh, really struck me. A Ben Folds saying, what used to be extremes, now a bore. What used to be on the extreme is now a bore. And it occurred to me that we live in a really unique time. It's a time where you have a couple of things happening at the same space that seem like they're at odds with each other, but are in fact symptoms of a deeper cause. The first extreme is apathy in the world. It just seems like there's a lot of apathy right now. I read a study recently, just from this last week, uh, a German study describing Christianity in Germany. It says that less than 3% open their Bibles even once a week. It's not that they're not well-meaning. It's just that, well, who cares? Uh, Someone will feed it to me eventually, so why should I have to go to the Word? And we live in a time where we see news items, and we just grow a little bit apathetic. It's another shooting It's another crime, it's another day, it's another march, it's another thing. And so we live in a time of extreme apathy. In fact, sometimes I'll hear from parents and many of their concerns are, how do I get my kid off the couch? They can't figure out what's what's worth living for. Uh, On the opposite end, we live in a time of extreme anger. Uh, It seems as if people are actually manufacturing ways to be angry these days. And so you'll go on talk shows and they found the new way to be indignant. People are angry about politics. They're angry about issues. They're angry about their circumstances. They're angry about generations past. They're angry about generations future. They're just angry. Have you ever noticed that? And for those of you in the apathy camp, the anger gets a little boring. And for those in the anger camp, they get mad at those in the apathetic camp that they're not more passionate about being 
angry at the things that they're angry about. But both of those things, anger and apathy, are really symptoms of something deeper. And that deeper is a longing for significance in the world. Like, why am I here? What's my point? And the reason for that is if you can't answer that question, you start giving up. You go, well, until it comes along and I figure out why I'm here, I'm not going to worry about it. Or you get angry and frustrated because you can't figure out what's worth living for. Well, we've been going through a series called Under the Sun as we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes looks at a very modern question, which is this longing for significance. Is there anything worth living for? And so week after week here, we've been going through this incredible book, really written for today, even though it's an ancient book, because... Solomon, or who we think is Solomon, uh, was writing this book and he decided, listen, I'm going to pursue the big questions of life and I'm going to experience them. I'm going to like live them out and I'm going to ask the intellectual questions behind them to see if they actually satiate or satisfy my longing for significance. And so Solomon essentially runs a bunch of relational experiments. All right, a whole bunch of people today are running experiential experiments with their lives. If I can just experience this, if I can just go through that, then maybe I'll figure it out. Well, he is doing that for us even back then. So it's an ancient book that's really written for a very modern question. And maybe the best way to summarize the book is to think of Anchorman. In the opening scenes of Anchorman, there's a character by the name of Ron Burgundy. Yes, the Ron Burgundy. And in the couple scenes there, there's, he's at a pool party. And he says this. I actually had to look it up. He says, we've been coming to the same party for 12 years now, and in no way is that depressing. And he says it depressed because it's the same boring party year after year after year. And so as we've been getting into this series, we've been exploring this big idea behind the book of Ecclesiastes, which is this. God offers a full life in an empty world. God offers a full life in an empty world. And so we've just been going through big questions. And these are questions, again, that he is living out for us, thinking about, and then comparing life under the sun to life above our sun, to this existential life with God. So chapter one is a full life found in being smart. Chapter two is a full life found by doing what makes me feel good. Is a full life found in work. And of course, the answer to that becomes no, because everyone's working for the weekend, right? Chapter four is a full life found in pursuing equity for everyone. That was a great question. We covered that in chapter four. And then chapter five is a full life found in the admiration of others. Like if I can become a Kardashian, will that give me a full life? And of course, the answer to that has been no. He tries. He's in the position he has the finances, the means, the reputation, and he does the experiment and discover, discovers that it just doesn't satiate. Well, this morning, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 to 23, and we're going to look at the answer to this question. Is a full life found in deciding to be a good person? In other words, under the sun, a life without God, forget God for a second, Forget all that existential stuff and, you know, is there a different reality? Is it a bigger reality? Like, if I just try to be a good person on my own, is that enough? Am I going to be satisfied 
in life? Well, I have found the purpose that I'm looking for. So we're going to get into the scripture together. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 15 to 23. If you have your Bibles, an analog version, you'll want to turn there, okay? I want to encourage you to get your nose in that book. If you have a digital version, I want to encourage you to go there. For those of you who have neither, we have it up on the screen, but I do want to encourage you to get there. Don't just allow scripture to be fed to you. Go to it. Learn what it means to go to the word as your source of life. There's really only one book in your entire life you really need to know, and this is it. So I want to encourage you to be in it. Now, I'm going to ask as we read this that we would do something unusual, even unusual for LifePoint. In that, I'm going to ask us to do a fairly ancient practice. It's just a way, a physical way of saying we are not reading Dr. Seuss here, okay? We're not reading C.S. Lewis. We're not reading Lord of the Rings. We love Lord of the Rings. But we're not reading Lord of the Rings. This is God's word. And so I'm going to ask, if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to pick things up in verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this, all this, I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you humbly, asking your truth, your voice, breathe through this passage to speak into our very modern, very confused, very apathetic and angry lives. We exist here and now in this time and space by your desire. And so clearly you want us to learn something. And we're all keeping this divine appointment that you've set, whether we know it or not. So help us to seize this moment well. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's just go through the text verse by verse here. Verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Essentially, what Solomon is saying there is life is unfair. Life is unfair. In fact, one author said this. He said, this is exactly the opposite of what most people expect. The righteous people out to rejoice in their prosperity, while the wicked suffer adversity until finally they admit that God is in control. All too often, what we see instead is what the preacher saw. Righteous people dying before their time while their enemies keep on living. Godly pastors are martyred for their faith while their persecutors live to terrorize the church another day. Innocent victims get cut down in the prime of life, yet their attackers never get caught. It's just not fair, unquote. 
And it can feel that way. Let's just be honest. Sometimes life just does not seem fair. And so Solomon is calling out a reality. Man, if morality is a good thing, you know, why not just make the attempt to be good? Why does it have to be under the authority of God? Why can't I just, if it's going to be, it just depends on what happens, then how about I just live my life just kind of meandering through, making it up as I go? Now, that's not too hard for us to understand or accept. Life is unfair. Yes, it is. Build a bridge. Walk across it. The question is not, is it unfair? The question is, what do you do about living in an unfair world? And that is where Solomon is going to go next. And the problem is that when we read verses 16 to 18, things get confusing for us. They do. I don't know if you read this the first time and went, what? Like, what is he saying right now? I mean, what does he say? He says, be not overly righteous. Wait a second, aren't I called to righteousness? Am I not to be holy even as Jesus is holy? And do not make yourself too wise. You've got to be kidding me right now. Like, don't be too wise. Isn't the entire book of Proverbs about wisdom? Isn't Ecclesiastes talk about wisdom? Aren't I supposed to be wise? Yeah, I may not be the smartest person on the earth, but shouldn't I pursue a little bit of wisdom? And yet here you're saying, don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Great, thanks for that. I shouldn't make an effort. Be not overly wicked. Okay. Neither be a fool. Half right. Why should you die before your time? So the challenge here is at first, this seems like Solomon is just saying, c'est la vie. Like this feels a little bit like an argument for apathy. You wouldn't give this speech to your children. Hey, son, I have great plans for you. Just don't hurt anyone as you go. Live a bland, boring life. Be as vanilla as possible. And when you die, we can say, meh. No one would say that. That makes zero sense, right? Well, we know scripture doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's in context with other scriptures. And so we know that this is actually antithetical to what the rest of scripture says. So we really have to read the text carefully. This is the challenge. Most of us, we read text. We don't read it carefully. And the key here is at the end of verse 18. What's it say? For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now, I'm no math whiz, but both seems to imply two. So the one who fears God shall come out of, from both of them. What two? Well, the two things that he mentions in verses 16 and 17. So there's two points that Solomon is making in verses 16 and then in 17. So we'll take these one at a time because they're worth going through and they make really important points when it comes to this big question. Here's the first thing he says in verse 16. The spiritual roller coaster is a trap. That's what he says. The spiritual roller coaster is a trap. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? In other words, this is a warning against attaching your spirituality to your sense of self-righteousness. That under the sun, I can do it. Because what it says is, the more you try, you'll get there. You'll be like, oh, I am so moral. And then you'll find yourself crashing even against your own code. You'll be like, man, I'm so tired of being the goody two-shoes. I'll just go for it. Then you'll crash and then you have to rebuild and figure out another way so you feel spiritually moral about yourself. The challenge here is that roller coasters aren't enough. The highs and the lows, right? The, the I'll be up, 
as a moral person, I'll be down. And the best analogy we might have for this is the roller coaster of love, right? Some of you remember that song, roller coaster, right? You know, you're welcome for that earworm. You can take that away this morning. Many people like rom-coms. And because my wife is here, I'm one of them. And what's a rom-com all about? Two people meet, they have a meet cute, right? Then what happens? There's some misunderstanding. Somebody gets mad at someone. Something comes between them. So we're down. Then we get back together. We're elated. But the challenge is that love wasn't meant to be an endless rom-com. He loves me, he loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. You know, oh, oh. Imagine your whole marriage is, oh, oh. Here's the challenge. Initially, you actually start to get nauseous. You get relationally nauseous. Like, I don't think I can do this anymore. We're having the same fights. It's the same thing. Someone's conjured something so we can get back together again and have this wonderful ending until we go right back up the roller coaster and down again. Then what starts to happen is even worse. It starts to get boring. It starts to get boring. You can see it coming a mile away. And the same thing is true with spirituality. When you're trying to build your morality based on you being wise, I figured this thing out, and then you crash, and you have to figure out a way to come back out of it. You get nauseous. Why am I not getting traction? And then life gets boring. And if you're not careful, if you're a Christian or even a non-Christian, you read verses like Matthew 11 verse 30 where Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, you'll wonder what kind of a cosmic joke that is. What are you talking about? Burden is light. I am killing myself trying to be a righteous person here. I'm doing my very best to live morally. And you're going to hear words like freedom and joy and you'll feel like they exist, but you just can't get to them because you're stuck on this roller coaster. And so the self-righteous roller coaster leads to an empty life. It's a life under the sun. And that's why verse 18 says, but the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. You were built for more than just party on, Wayne, Party on, Garth. Game on, game off. Up, down, camp, 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 back to the valley. You were built for more than that. Life is made of more than that, and God has more than that for you. Now, here's the second of the both. Remember, that was the first. The first was the spiritual roller coaster is a trap. Here's the second. It's verse 17. Here he's saying, enough isn't enough. Enough isn't enough. What's he say? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now here, it's actually helpful to have just a little bit of commentary. So here's a little bit of commentary. Be not overly wicked does not mean be bad, but not too bad. One commentator wrote, the adverb overmuch does not mean that a certain amount of evil is acceptable, just as long as it's not too much. It's rather a warning against giving yourself wholly to doing evil. There's a great difference. Don't give yourself over to evil is the sense, unquote. So it's in the same ballpark, the same idea as self-righteousness, but with a little bit of a twist. Essentially, Solomon is saying that it is helpful. It's helpful for us to avoid the extremes of comparing ourselves to others on one side. 
right? What do we all like to say? Well, at least I'm not Hitler. Everybody compares themselves to Hitler, right? He's the ultimate patty. As long as I'm not Hitler, I'm an okay person. That's how, and he says, be careful of that comparison uh, because that hurts us. Comparisons hurt the way that we view morality because there's a slide to it, and it actually hurts our intrinsic sense of satisfaction. Remember, we're asking how we move forward in a world that's unfair. And Solomon is saying that in order to move, we have to begin to move beyond this idea of comparing ourselves to other people. And so we don't want to compare ourselves to the worst of the worst. And at the same time, we don't want to use grace on the opposite lane to be foolish. I blew it, but thank goodness for the grace of God. I remember once being in college and I had a friend who was studying to be a, a pastor at the time who said, listen, let's just do it. We'll ask for forgiveness later. I won't mention what he was trying to convince me to do, but it wasn't good. Right. We'll just ask for forgiveness later. And maybe you'd even had that same thought. Well, it's all covered by grace. And so on the one hand, I'm not Hitler. On the other hand, I'm moving towards foolishness. I make bad decisions because I think grace is going to cover it. And so don't use grace as an opportunity to sin is the sense of this other side of life. So don't compare myself to others morally and don't use grace as an opportunity to sin. Now, Paul in Romans chapter 6 says this. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I mean, he addresses that directly, even in the New Testament. And the answer, of course, is no, no, that's not the idea. So in essence, Solomon is making a practical point here about focus. Everybody say the word focus. Focus. If your focus is on how well you are or aren't doing or on giving yourself leeway to do whatever you want to do, you'll first grow neurotic and second, you'll grow lukewarm. And Jesus had some pretty strong things to say about being a lukewarm person. Now, the best way I can maybe convey this is to talk about swimming. I uh, grew up in California. I used to swim. I went for a swim yesterday. Um, turns out I'm not as good as I remember myself to be. But anyway, um, and if you are a swimmer, you know that a swimming lane has two sides to it, right? They put up these rope things, and you just don't want to drift into those things. But here's the challenge. When you begin to swim on a swim team, sometimes you'll focus on the lanes. And so what happens is when you focus on one or the other, you actually drift over into it, and you hinder the progress you want to make. You don't go as fast. You'll literally just bump this way and that way. And I used to swim backstroke. And so if you really uh, weren't careful, you'd backstroke along the lane, which meant you could feel the friction and you just weren't going to go as fast or as far. And that made swimming a literal drag. And so what Solomon is saying here is, how do you enjoy the swim? Well, you don't focus on the lanes. What can I get away with? Who am I comparing myself to? Your focus is to be on the Lord. Your focus is to be on where you're going. Your focus is to be on where he is leading you. So when he says it's the fear of the Lord, what he's saying is it's keeping God first in terms of our focus. So we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that allows us to avoid being stuck on roller coasters or on losing the joy of the journey. Why? Because we're so focused on these lane guards. So now that we know what verses 15 through 18 are, we can move 
through the singular thought of verses 19 to 23, which the first few times you read it feel like a hodgepodge of Proverbs. They just do. It's just one of these things you're like, Solomon, do you have like truth ADD here? Because it feels like we're bouncing around just a little bit. Look at this, verse 19 to, uh, to 22. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Anyone? Right? At first you read, you're like, thought, thought, thought. It feels like I'm reading through Proverbs where it feels like, okay, you made a nice pithy point. That's a great meme. This is a great truth. And it feels as if you're kind of wandering. But that's actually not what's happening here. He actually has one cohesive thought in this context. And here it is. The third thing. Humility stems from reality. That's what he's saying. Humility stems from reality. Now remember where we started. We started with living in an unfair world, right? So how do we move forward in a world that's unfair? Well, Solomon says that fundamental to movement, in order to move, we have to act beyond what we wish for or getting trapped in our spiritual imaginations to real world actions, to real world actions. We have to live in the real world making traction. And the only way you can do that is to begin by knowing who you are and where you are. Uh, We have a Britney Spaniel by the name of Poppy. Poppy thinks she rules the house. Poppy also is allowed to sleep on the bed with us because I'm married to a very wonderful and gracious person who is right over here and listening to every word I say. So she sleeps right between us. Now, right now it's bunny season. Who here has seen bunnies as you go on walks? Anyone? Okay. Where we live over by Springer Woods, there's a bunch of bunnies. And Poppy lives to track these bunnies down. Well, at night, as she's sleeping, she's chasing rabbits. And I can feel her next to me. All I feel the whole night is... Like, that's, that's all I feel. Just a constant kind of thing. And the challenge is, when it comes to our spiritual movement, a lot of the way that we view ourselves takes place in our spiritual imaginations and simply doesn't translate its way to the real world. We come to church, we think good thoughts, we think about casseroles and Panera Bread and whatever else we're going to, and life kind of marches on. And the challenge is we become like a dog chasing rabbits in a bed, but going nowhere. So Solomon here is doing us a favor. He wants us to get out of our dreams and move forward in this unfair world that we're living in. And to do that, we have to be realistic about ourselves first. Not who we wish we were, not who we project ourselves to be, but honest about who we truly are. Listen to this rendering of the passage. Here's what he's saying. We know what we want. We want to navigate life wisely under the challenges life throws at us. Wisdom is needed, but no one is perfect. So when others complain that you're imperfect, you have the freedom to agree. And I've had to learn the hard way when I was confronted by my own fallenness. And by the way, Solomon was. I realized that I have, as Robert Frost puts it, miles to go before I sleep. It's about being realistic about who we are and our own lack of righteousness and our dependence in the sphere of the Lord 
in order to move forward. Romans 3.23 puts this easily, and many of you have this memorized. Some of you maybe have never heard it, but it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the beginning to finding traction in a world full of anger and apathy, frustration and resignation, is to realize that I don't have the answers. And me being in control of figuring out my morality isn't actually going to help me. It's going to frustrate me. And I'm going to discover that it's just as empty as chasing everything else is. And the hope in Ecclesiastes that the author comes to over and over and over again is, but God, above the sun, God holds the key to the life that I'm actually longing for. Why? What's the big idea again? Because only God offers a full life in an empty world. And so the bottom line here is, we know what we long for, but we're not smart enough to know what we're looking for, which sounds like a U2 song, right? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But that's really what he's saying. We're just not smart enough to know what we're looking for, so we have to rely on the one who's actually leading us to the place that he knows is best for us. Now, how does the text conclude? The author writes, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That's pretty honest. And this is the guy who was gifted with wisdom. And that's also the problem with deciding that wisdom resides within yourself. You know yourself too well to trust you. I know myself too well to trust me. I can get some things right, but I'm not 100%. And things can blindside me just as they can blindside you. So who do you put your trust in and where is your perspective for living morally? Where is your focus for following coming from? Now, I've spoken with people of all different stripes and backgrounds. And I can say that for most people that I've met globally, for most people, the issue isn't about knowledge. Yeah, I get it. I'm pretty dumb. I get it. I don't have all the answers, and I get it. I don't have always had the, great, the best perspective on things. For most people, though, the issue is control. Yeah, I may not be the best at it, but I just don't want to give control over my life to God who may. Because that means he's going to decide what I should do. That means he's going to decide what my dreams are, what if he sends me to Africa to be like a missionary? I don't think I can handle that kind of pressure. Well, that's the problem. Because the problem is you actually do have to give your life up in order to find it. See, it's really a control issue. Who owns your morality? Is it you? Or is it God? Jesus said this. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Boy, Solomon had the whole world. And forfeits his soul. So I'm just going to ask in closing that with every head bowed and every eye closed, man, nobody else looking around, I just want us to have an honest moment this morning. Just a brutally honest moment. 
Some of you, you've heard about hope in God as a knowledge proposition. And knowledge is involved. You should know something that you didn't know before, namely that Jesus is God and he alone is worth following. He alone is worth giving up control of your life to and he alone can save. But the truth is, even though some of you may have been raised in church, you've done church on your terms, religion on your terms, morality on your terms, and it all works until it doesn't, and then you call on grace and you just say, well, there you go. Because it's still all on your terms. And you've just never given up control of your life to follow a God who really is there, but who you won't really discover until you give up control. And that's as honest as I can be. That's really the lay of the land. And maybe this morning for the very first time, you're here and you didn't expect that God himself would be talking to you. Nudging at you like a puppy, gnawing at you like a rat right now. And just saying, I'm talking to you. I want control of your life. I want to be Lord. So if that's you, I just want to pray for you and offer a prayer that you can echo. I can't pray this for you. Believe me, if I could, I would. I promise. Scripture says you have to pray it, but sometimes it's just hard to find the words. So maybe I can provide some words this morning that you can agree to. But if that's a decision you want to make, just giving up control of your life so that God can be in control, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. see that hand. see that hand. Thank you. I see your hands. I see those hands in the back. Thank you. I see that hand. Let's just pray. God, if you're real, man, I've heard about you. I've heard about Jesus. I hear about freedom and joy and all these things. And man, it just seems just out of reach. I get glimpses of you. I do think life is bigger than me. I really do. The problem is, I just want to be in charge. morning I realize I can't live life that way so if you're real Jesus if you're there I mean really there I give you my life to know you my past my present and every step of my future because I'm so desperate because this roller coaster This way of living is just making me sick. And I can't do it anymore. So would you please take over? I'm yours. Scripture says that if you echoed those sentiments in your heart, that the Holy Spirit himself enters in and can change your life from the inside out. And though life may get sometimes ordinary, understand 
you are now brought out of the ordinary to live a life not under this sun, but above it. Because one day this sun will fade away. But your life in Christ won't. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.